welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dung, a adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case and then pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. Today, we actually have two. You are now listening to the third installment of the Febrile series entitled Curious Congenital Conundrums, and I have several guests to introduce today. I'll start with our co-host, Dr. Karsten Kruger. He attended medical school at the University of Calgary before completing a residency in pediatrics at the University of Toronto. Currently, he's completing a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases at the University of Ottawa and is co-principal investigator of the National Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Program Study on Congenital Syphilis. Hello. Our first guest discussant I will introduce is Dr. Claire Norse. Dr. Norse is a pediatric infection specialist at Queensland Children's Hospital in Brisbane and a professor in the School of Clinical Medicine at the University of Queensland. She qualified in medicine from Trinity College, Dublin, and trained in Dublin, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Her particular interests are in HIV, TB, and syphilis infection in children, tropical infection, and infection in resource-limited countries, particularly Timor-Leste. She travels regularly to Timor-Leste and is a founder and board director of Maluk Timor, a nonprofit organization for which she chairs the Medical Advisory Committee. Her particular research interests are in translation of epidemiology of infection in children to clinical practice. Thanks. Hello. And then our second discussant today, you've met before on the show. This is Dr. Justin Penner. Justin completed his medical school and pediatric residency at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Always having an interest for ID, he subsequently completed a master's in tropical medicine and international health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, followed by a fellowship in pediatric ID at St. Mary's Hospital in London, UK, and a fellowship in pediatric immunocompromised ID at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Justin is a member of the Penta Network Educational Group on Congenital Infections and has a particular interest in Indigenous health in the Canadian North. He currently works as a pediatric ID consultant at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Canada, and at the Kikitani General Hospital in Akaluit, Nunavut, and as an honorary academic fellow at the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. All right. And before we jump in, we're going to start with our one non-medical question, which is if you guys would be willing to share a little piece of culture or something that you have enjoyed recently. So I can maybe start and then I'll let... Uh... Claire uh, jump in after me. So I guess something that uh, uh, I'm not sure, Sarah, if you know, but I'm a, a te tennis aficionado. So although my uh, my sports love has been taken over by the Olympics lately, um, <laughs> I'm quite uh, fond of, of tennis, both playing and watching, although I'm certainly not as agile as I used to be. Well, I like that, Justin, because I'm also extremely keen on tennis. I play about <laughs> five times a week. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, did you watch the Australian Open? I really enjoyed the Australian Open recently, <laughs> and we didn't miss Novak's at all. <laughs> Certainly, I'm not much of a sporty person myself, but I, I think like food is a big part of culture. And we made a uh, very delicious uh, Quebecois brie uh, cranberry maple um, pecan cheese recently, and that was del delicious. Wow, that does sound amazing. Well, uh, I will hand it back over to Carson so we can jump into the case. So you were called by your adult ophthalmology colleagues about a case that they have just seen in their clinic, which they would like your assistance with. 
they've seen a 31-year-old woman with new-onset vision loss and eye pain who's been diagnosed with uveitis. In the investigations to determine potential etiology for uveitis, syphilis serology was found to be positive, treponema pallidum IgG positive with an RPR of 1 in 1,024. The woman has just given birth four months ago to a baby boy who was well at birth but required admission to hospital at 12 days of life. They tell you that the child was previously been admitted to hospital, although the name is not familiar to the infectious diseases team. As such, you go to the electronic medical record to gather a bit more information. You discover that the baby was admitted under the pediatric hematology team with pancytopenia, lymphadenopathy, and hepatosplenomegaly. The workup for congenital HLH was done, uh, given the constellation of symptoms, and the child was uh, treated for febrile neutropenia with four days of piperacillin tazobactam and spontaneously improved. Biochemical and genetic investigations for congenital HLH were negative. Blood and urine cultures were negative. Bone marrow biopsy did not reveal a malignant etiology. An LP was not performed at the time of admission due to thrombocytopenia. The neonate spontaneously improved and was discharged with a yet-to-be-determined diagnosis with close follow-up under the hematology team. So my question to our, our guests, how would you go about approaching this curious conundrum? Claire, maybe you want to start us off? Oh, yeah, very happy to. Justin, I, I have to say that this isn't as curious a conundrum as it might have been for me, given we've had a, a very similar case recently in Brisbane, and I suspect similar cases are presenting a, across the world. So, you know, we, we need to do a lot of things. We need to get more history, more information about the mum's history and her antenatal history, social history during pregnancy or sexual history and exposures, and whether mum has signs or symptoms of, of syphilis or any other STIs. I guess with the history also need to, details of the birth and whether there were any signs or symptoms of congenital syphilis in the baby or afterwards, um, and whether the baby had any screening during its previous um, admission. And then we would look at all the booking bloods, for syphilis and other STIs for mum? Did she seroconvert after her booking bloods? Yeah, that's a, definitely a, a good start. This is certainly an interesting case. I think I'd, I'd be interesting, interested to hear, Claire, what your experience in Australia has been with the epidemiology of syphilis, but certainly in the UK and where I work in Northern Canada, we've certainly been seeing a lot more positive cases in pregnancy, but equally uh, several cases that were negative in pregnancy and either found to be positive at birth or in their subsequent visits afterwards. Either they presented with a, a symptom of syphilis near after they delivered or, or whether the child presented with, with symptoms uh, despite a negative screening in pregnancy. And, and I think it's just interesting that the epidemiology that we're seeing in that we're, we're seeing less of the uh, syphilis in the kind of what we think of as the traditional risk uh, population. And in fact, we're seeing more in the uh, women of childbearing age, which certainly then builds over to increased chances of congenital syphilis. Yes, 
Just we're seeing exactly the same in Australia. I mean, we're seeing increasing numbers of cases of not only in Queensland, but every state except Tasmania. There's been a tenfold increase in the last uh, years. In Australia, this has partly been related to an outbreak in the Aboriginal population in the northern part of Australia. But as well as the outbreak, which is a heterosexual outbreak, we're also traditionally we would have seen syphilis in men of sex with men, especially in the urban centres. But now that has spilled over due to different sexual practices and perhaps less condom use into the heterosexual population and particularly young and marginalized, urbanized women who are often couch surfing, um, but not only this group. And of course, most of them are, a lot of them are at childbearing age. And so, as you mentioned, we're seeing congenital syphilis occur probably through fetal death, through uh, resulting in fetal death, resulting in stillbirth. We're seeing infants born prematurely and unwell and having syphilis diagnosed. And then we are seeing infants presenting at three, four, up to nine months of age. So we really need to be alert to uh, the possibility of congenital syphilis, not only in newborns, but in older infants as well. Good. And I think, um, yeah, the differential at this point certainly includes congenital genital syphilis. And as Claire mentioned, we need to work the, the baby up for that. Um, but I think we also need to remember that um, STIs travel in packs, and we need to not forget about the other bloodborne viruses and STIs that could be transmitted uh, in pregnancy as well, uh, in particular, the ones that we could potentially prevent. So HIV and the viral uh, hepatitis, particularly hepatitis B. And what we would not want is this child to also acquire HIV, perhaps because the mum was breastfeeding or because uh, the baby was missed uh, at birth. And, and we would not want to miss a window of opportunity for that. So just keeping in mind that uh, although syphilis is definitely highest on the differential from a congenital infections, we wouldn't want to miss any other co-infections as well. Very good. Looking into the history a little bit further in the electronic medical records, it appears that the following infectious workup was done on previous admission. Negative cultures of blood, urine, and bone marrow aspirate. Negative viral uh, PCR panel from a nasopharyngeal swab. HIV PCR was negative. Stool culture was negative for antibiotic-resistant organisms. And a bone marrow uh, aspirate was negative for mastigotes and leishmania PCR. You confirm that the baby received four days of piptazo, after which blood counts gradually improved prior to discharge. On review of the admission examination to hospital, there is no mention of rash or skin desquamation, but there were scattered petechiae in keeping with thrombocytopenia of 14. A, a normal ears, nose, and throat examination and musculoskeletal and neurologic examinations were also completed. But on abdominal exam, there was marked hepatosplenomegaly, which was confirmed on abdominal ultrasound. The remaining viscera, including the kidneys, ureters, and bladder, were uh, unremarkable. The umbilical cord had fallen off by the time of admission, and several small lymph nodes were noted in the axilla bilaterally, as well as in the inguinum and in the anterior and posterior cervical regions. The fontanelle was level and soft, and the cranial ultrasound was normal. And on specialized laboratory testing, analyses for Perforin, SAP, XIAP, functional analyses, granulocyte release assay, soluble CD25, uh, pardon, 
LDH, and triglycerides were not consistent with congenital HLH. Lymphocyte subsets and memory cell panels were normal for age, and the maximal CRP measured was 41 milligrams per milliliter. We were also able to obtain the results of mums booking bloods in pregnancy at 12 weeks gestation, which demonstrated negative HIV serology, negative treponemal and non-treponemal tests, and negative hepatitis B surface antigen. Hepatitis C serology was not available as it's not typically done in the UK during pregnancy. Antenatal serologies were not repeated in the later trimesters as is standard in UK guidance. The child was born by spontaneous vaginal delivery at 39 weeks and one day gestation with no complications. The initial postnatal course was uneventful and they were discharged at about 24 hours of life where the newborn discharge exam did not document any abnormalities. You are able to contact the family and arrange to see them in the pediatric infectious diseases clinic this week. What are the next steps you wish to take in investigating the child for potential congenital syphilis? Yeah, so clearly this child was admitted under a hematology team because he's had some, or she has had some quite uh, extensive workup from a congenital HLH perspective. But um, certainly there seems to be some more kind of simpler things that uh, we as infectious diseases doctors probably would have sent at the the beginning. Uh, But again, this just demonstrates in these complicated cases, really the importance of, of multiple teams being involved. I think at this point, probably we can talk a little bit about the the workup for congenital syphilis in this child. And I think one thing is that syphilis is can be quite a, a confusing uh, bug to work up. I think the differences in the treponemal test and the non-treponemal tests can get quite confusing. So I think at the first uh, point in time, I think the important thing to do is, uh, which has already been done, which is really good, is going back to mom's initial prenatal bloods to seeing if she was negative then, and then repeating her current bloods to see if she's seroconverted throughout this time. We can then do a paired uh, serological assays with the mom and the child. So the more important serological assay in this sort of circumstance would be the non-treponemal test. So the RPR or what used to be used more commonly is the VDRL. Uh, however, they're often thought of as kind of interchangeable. We can then compare the, the titer in the, the mum and the uh, child uh, to see if the, the child's titer of RPR is, is quite significantly higher than the mother's, particularly if it's four times higher than the mum's. Um, other things that I always do in these sort of circumstances as well is I would ensure that we think of all the other systems that can be involved in congenital syphilis. So I would certainly repeat that CBC to make sure that the blood counts, particularly the platelets, have normalized. And the liver enzymes and the bilirubin would also be important to check in this circumstance. Thinking of other kind of organs that could be affected, we think of the eyes and both anterior and posterior disease in the eye, as well as as hearing loss, so involving the audiologist to make sure we get uh, some good ABR uh, examinations would also be good. I think in this sort of circumstance, we need to really highly consider doing a lumbar puncture to make sure that this child doesn't have a meningeal process involved as well, um, as it can be quite tricky, as we all know as, as pediatricians, to differentiate this clinically in a child of this age. And certainly this would make a difference with regards to treatment and follow-up in this child as well. Although it may be hard to convince this mother, I do think that it's something that would be important to do. 
When it comes to treponemal-specific tests, I don't find them as helpful in these sort of circumstances. So that would be your TPPA or TPHA or any of the the tests um, that would stay positive after an infection in the mum. As we all know, those antibodies will be transferred to the baby through the placenta. So the baby will certainly still be positive uh, all the way up until about at most 18 months of age. Uh, So the non-treponemal tests in this sort of circumstance would be the most important. I'm sure Claire probably has some stuff to add as well. Yes, no, Justin, I would take a very similar approach. I mean, I in my mind, I usually have you know two steps. One is has the child got congenital syphilis, most likely, and then if so, then what additional investigations would I do? And to make the diagnosis of congenital syphilis, in my mind, I have sort of five five aspects to it. As you mentioned, one is is there are there any abnormalities in the clinical examination? And this child has in a way, typical sort of syphilis mimicker um, abnormalities. We had a very similar case where a child presented and was thought to have congenital leukemia because of the anemia, thrombocytopenia, sepsis-like presentation, very large liver. So I go clinical features. Then, as you mentioned, the RPR. Is the RPR four times higher than mother's? That's almost diagnostic, not always the case. We use IgM here. Um, I I don't know if you do, but um, it can take a week to come back, but the syphilis IgM in the baby. I would also look at um, the the placenta. Now, this isn't often available. It won't be available probably at three months. But even if, um, if the baby was younger, we would always look at the histology of the placenta and do syphilis PCR. And then the last thing we are doing here in Queensland, and because of the high incidence, is looking at the adequacy of maternal treatment. And if mum hasn't been treated um, or has had treatment less than four weeks before delivery, like very recent treatment, we almost err on the side of um, caution and consider the baby may have congenital syphilis. So those five aspects. And then, as you mentioned, if the diagnosis is likely or confirmed, then we go on to do eye assessment, skeletal survey, lumbar puncture are are, are the main extra investigations. And I'm really glad, Claire, that you brought up the placenta because I think we often forget about that. And if we can get our hands on it, it's it's often a a very important thing, um, which we can do molecular and histologic tests on it as well. It's the only other thing that I forgot, and this is certainly probably a little bit of an older child, so we, we wouldn't likely see it. But if this was a younger baby that had skin lesions or uh, hemorrhagic rhinitis. The other place that we can often isolate uh, molecularly the syphilis is by doing a PCR sample of the nasal secretions or of the uh, skin lesions themselves as well. So that's just another thing to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So the mother uh, reluctantly agrees to return for a lumbar puncture of the baby and has blood work drawn the day of the clinic, which demonstrates for the baby TPPA qualitatively positive, RPR is 1 in 128. The mother's TPPA is also qualitatively positive and has the same RPR of 1 in 128. HIV PCR is negative. Hepatitis B surface antigen is negative. Hepatitis C PCR is negative. And toxoplasma serology is negative. The complete blood count has a hemoglobin of 108 platelets of 168, and white blood cells of 8, with an absolute neutrophil count of 5.1, 
and an absolute lymphocyte count of 2.6. The ALT is 23, the total bilirubin is 6, and the lumbar puncture reveals uh, a total white blood cell count of 7, with protein of 0.54, glucose of 3.6, and a CSF RPR that's pending. Long bone x-rays are normal, the ophthalmologic exam is normal, and the audiology is also normal. How would you go about discussing treatment for the mother at this point? Claire, do you want to start this one off for us? I know we've had lots of discussions about treatment in congenital syphilis, so I'd be curious what you, uh, how you would start with this child. Uh, so with the child, so look, I think for us, we would give this baby, this infant, full treatment um, because the mother hasn't been treated at all during pregnancy. And, you know, we are treating quite a few infants where we may not have absolutely confirmed a diagnosis of congenital syphilis um, with a positive PCR from the baby or positive PCR from the placenta or positive IgM. But if it's a suggestive history and if the mother hasn't received any syphilis treatment during her pregnancy, then we would treat the baby. And our treatment is 10 days of um, IV uh, crystalline penicillin. Um, we hardly ever use the benzathine IM option. And whether the baby has um, neurosyphilis or not, and the test we use is VDRL in the CSF. Um, it's a little bit more sensitive than the PCR. So whether that's positive or not, we still give the same 10-day course of intravenous penicillin. If the baby does have a positive VDRL in the CSF, then we would repeat that CSF at six months of age. And if it's still positive, retreat the infant. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you have to err on the side of caution in these sort of circumstances. The mum had uh, clearly has evidence of syphilis and, and so does the baby uh, without any treatment in pregnancy. And certainly we don't want to miss this in this sort of phase and then have other signs or symptoms that develop later on in life either. And I would treat it exactly the same as, as you would, Claire. And I think that it is important to do the lumbar puncture in this sort of circumstance. I think some people at this age would consider the IM uh, benzathine penicillin dosing regimen, but certainly if there was evidence of uh, CSF involvement, then that would not be optimal treatment in this baby. I think it's, it's quite um, interesting in that um, this baby clearly made a, a quite good recovery after their short course of uh, penicillin-based uh, antibiotics in their initial uh, investigations and admission under the hematology team with piperacillin tazobactam. So I do wonder if whether the baby had been kind of partially treated or even you know fully treated uh, with the piptazo, but I don't think that at this point we can rely on that as an optimal treatment regimen, and certainly a regimen that doesn't classically uh, thought of as crossing the blood-brain barrier. So if they did have neurosyphilis, would not be equally reliable. Um, I do know that um, some guidelines, which we would consider giving a dose of IM benzathine penicillin at the end of the 10 days of crystalline penicillin G, although that's not uh, universal, but certainly something to consider. And I think interesting point that Claire brought up about repeating the LP, as with most congenital infections, there's uh, differences in practice. I think the safest thing to do is to repeat the, the lumbar puncture, uh, as Claire stated, at six months uh, of age. Although some of the guidance has 
uh, particularly the CDC guidance is, is kind of going away from that uh, and going more on clinical grounds, which as we all know, again, in babies are quite hard to determine. But certainly if there wasn't serological evidence that this baby's uh, RPR decreased with treatment, then I would certainly do a repeat uh, LP. Thanks, Justin. And interesting about the single IM dose, uh, as you were mentioning, a slightly different scenario to what we sometimes use it, which is at the end of a full treatment of IV penicillin. But, um, and I know in the US CDC guidelines, there is an option for infants who are sort of a low suspicion of congenital syphilis, but can't be completely excluded of not giving them the 10-day IV treatment. So these are ones where you don't really suspect it, but it's possibly possible. Sorry, I, I shouldn't, I should clarify, if you ever have any suspicion, we should treat the infant fully. I, I guess we have some situations where we believe the infant doesn't have congenital syphilis, but we know that we're not going to be able to follow up the infant. It's likely they won't come back for their check serologies at three months and six months. And in those situations, we might give one dose of the benzathine penicillin IM. And again, just it shows the importance of follow-up in these children and repeating their non-treponemal serologies to make sure that we're seeing that adequate decrease. Because if we're not, we need to, we need to think outside of the box as well. Yeah. And Claire, now that we're on the topic, I'm just curious what your thoughts are of non-penicillin-based treatments. I know that uh, some people would use ceftriaxone or other antibiotics, although I know classically we think of penicillin as the, the, the only and gold standard treatment for syphilis. And I think that's what we would normally do, but perhaps times will change at some point. Yes, yes, it's interesting. And it's something it would be great to have better evidence of effectivity of some of the non-penicillin alternatives, especially the third generation cephalosporins. I mean, both the treatment of the mother and of the infant. We are very strict on it. So for going back to treatment of the mother, if a mother is allergic to penicillin, we will try and bring the mom in and desensitize the mother so that we can give penicillin treatments and not opt for alternative agents. And it may be that they're effective, but I don't think adequate evidence is there for crossing the placenta and treating the fetus at the same time. And with regard to the baby, again, we're pretty strict about the penicillin we only use penicillin, although we've had the same experience in newborn infants who present with sepsis, often premature, and are given our empiric um, antibiotic regimen of penicillin and gentamicin or ampicillin and gentamicin, and seem to improve a little. And then a diagnosis of congenital syphilis is made, and then we would revert to treating them with, with um, IV penicillin. That was an excellent discussion. So the baby undergoes a full 10 days of treatment as you only receive the CSF RPR results on the ninth day of treatment, which turns out to be negative. As previously stated, the ophthalmology examination is normal, as is the audiology exam the long, and the long bone x-rays. The mother's GUM results come back negative for hepatitis B, C, HIV, chlamydia, and gonorrhea and she's treated for syphilis uveitis herself with 10 days of IV penicillin G. The baby is discharged from hospital in good condition with pediatric infectious diseases follow-up. 
Is there anything else that our guests would like to discuss or final thoughts they'd like to impart? Yeah, I think this you know brings up lots of good points. I think there's been lots of good discussion. One of the things that we need to remember or or think about is whether or not we, especially in certain populations, need to be thinking about third trimester testing for syphilis and other bloodborne viruses in pregnancy. I know in the uh, populations that I work with uh, in the regions up north, it's syphilis, HIV, and hepatitis B are all screened for three times in pregnancy and then again at birth just because of the, the such high risks in our Indigenous populations as that perhaps would have caught this uh, case a little bit earlier and brought it to the attention of the, the medical staff. Now, with that said, I think there's also just a couple of things to keep in mind with regards to false positives as well as false negatives with um, syphilis testing. So we do know that women with uh, new early disease may not be caught depending on when their syphilis serology was done. If they just acquired syphilis days before they were tested, that might not show up in their serology just quite yet. And on the contrary, if they have an overwhelming burden of disease, you often also get a prozone effect where the result may be falsely negative as well. And you may be falsely reassured when in fact, actually the burden of disease is very high. Similarly, from a false positive effect, um, which we do see sometimes in our immigrant populations from different parts of the world. So we know that the uh, non-syphilitic treponemes the most common being yaws, but there are a couple of other varieties like Begel and Pinta, depending on which part of the world they're coming from, uh, especially international uh, adoptees, we see this sometimes, uh, where there is really no way of differentiating between syphilis and the endemic uh, treponemes. So just something to keep in mind. And then lastly, I guess, just to note that Although at this age and in this sort of scenario, um, this was clearly acquired perinatally, but in children and and older children, for that matter, too, we must never forget of sexual abuse or abuse as another mechanism of transmission of uh, syphilis as well. Claire, do you have any other clinical pearls? Great. Yeah, great points, Justin. And each one of those topics that you brought up, Warren could have a, a long and interesting discussion about them. And I'm, I'm glad syphilis is such an interesting and fascinating infection, isn't it? Um, yes. So on those points, we here in Queensland, which is in the north of Australia, um, do encounter patients with yours. Um, on the islands surrounding some of the islands north of Australia, yours is endemic and fairly common. And so, uh, but yours is also found occasionally in our northern, especially the indigenous population in northern Australia. And so we have been referred children uh, with supposed syphilis at an older age, where, as you say, based on the epidemiology and risk factors, not on the serology, we have um, assumed that this is due to yours, which is syphilis, treponym, uh, pallidum, pertinue. That Sorry, the other point that you brought up, which is so important, and we're undergoing a review in Queensland at the moment, is about antenatal testing. And that is the key to preventing congenital syphilis. And it's difficult. I think risk-based screening of women as to whether they warrant additional syphilis investigations during pregnancy is very, very difficult. Many of the babies we have encountered with congenital syphilis have mums who wouldn't have any particular risk factors um, for 
acquiring syphilis. And hence, in Western Australia, they've introduced routine testing at 28 weeks. Uh, in Queensland, we have a sort of a multi-tiered testing regime. If you are from an endemic area or an outbreak area, I should say, you will get up to five tests uh, during pregnancy. And these, this is the Aboriginal population in particular. If we do identify risk factors in the mother, we will do between two to five tests during pregnancy, depending on their risk. But that's a flawed method. And we are considering introducing routine 28-week uh, testing, although that will still miss some, some mothers. So I think it's so important to have public education and awareness amongst clinicians of thinking about um, syphilis uh, in, in mothers or pregnant mothers or congenital syphilis in infants. And just to say syphilis, as you mentioned, is such a great mimicker. In older children now, we need to be aware that they may come in with um, the classical signs of inflammation in their teeth, the nasal bridge, the ragades around the mouth where they get inflammation, bow legs, frontal bossing, the mulberry molars, all of those are the classical ones, and, and sepsis, especially an infant under 12 months of age, if they present with sepsis and aren't responding, although we usually give a penicillin-based antibiotic, so they might you know, think about congenital syphilis. Thank you both for these closing remarks. Uh, one thing that I wanted to highlight is that it's not indigeneity that creates the risk of congenital syphilis, but rather the underlying structural determinants of health and historic and ongoing systemic racism that creates disproportionate risks for First Nations and Indigenous people in Canada and abroad. Thanks, Karsten. Well, again, I'm so grateful to Karsten, Claire, and Justin for joining us for this talk on congenital syphilis. Please stay tuned for the rest of our Curious Congenital Conundrum series. You can find the introduction and the prior two cases in our previous episodes, and then be on the lookout for our fourth and final case in two weeks. Our usual disclaimer, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Don't forget to check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, as well as our library of ID infographics. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.